You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. I'd like to welcome you back for the second lecture. And as we said at the end of the first lecture, where I was stressing the importance of the study of the soul in Aristotle's writings and in Aquinas' writings, we noted that in the order of disciplines to be studied by someone who hopes to become an accomplished philosopher, logic and mathematics are to be studied first. The view was that these are propedeutic to strengthening the powers of the mind, helping a young person learn to reason from one thing to another, to be sure that he's not making fallacious inferences and so forth. And then one moves into the disciplines proper to philosophy, and natural philosophy is the first, that is the study of nature, which encompasses what we know by biology, but an awful lot more of the natural sciences, chemistry and so forth. Aristotle had, of course, only rudimentary knowledge of these disciplines, but in fact, that they are disciplines at all, we owe in large part to Aristotle, who got many of them started, the first individual to really work up disciplines like logic, the propedeutic discipline, and then others having to do with the study of nature. First person to talk about these as distinct branches of inquiry and to make some headway in them. So for all the scorn that modern scientists sometimes want to heap on Aristotle, he is certainly the one who made possible their own work. And we notice that after the study of nature, one moves into ethics and politics and that the study of philosophy itself culminates in metaphysics, which studies finally the causes, the ultimate principles of all existing things. And this finally is the study of God as cause of the being of things in the natural world. Now, what I said about this as well is that the study of the soul, which I have been insisting is where we ought to look for Aristotle and Aquinas' view of human nature, that is principally where we ought to look, not the only place, of course, that the study of the soul is part of natural philosophy. Notice how different this is from Descartes, right, who starts out with not a soul so much, but an intellect that's completely separate from something that might be studied in so-called physics or natural philosophy. That Aristotle takes up the topic of the soul as the culmination of the inquiry into nature and as providing a kind of broad background. It's in a way a culmination, in another way it provides a kind of background to all of the particular studies into the movement of animals, the life of plants, etc., particular inquiries that one would engage in and that have proliferated since the birth of the modern sciences in the 17th and 18th centuries. Now, it follows from this peculiar, from our perspective, location of the study of the soul, that is, as part of natural philosophy, that we ought to know something about natural philosophy. Now, there should be a separate set of lectures on the study of the philosophy of nature, yet we don't have occasion to go into all of that in great detail, and it would take at least six lectures to bring out all the highlights and important teachings of Aristotle's view and Aquinas' view of nature. But we need to hit some of the highlights so that we have a kind of background to the study of the soul and to the study of human nature. And so what I want to talk about very briefly is the notion of nature and what goes by the topic of the four causes. This is from book two of Aristotle's Physics. And Aristotle doesn't give exactly these names to all four of the causes, but something roughly like this has been handed down through Aquinas and it makes a kind of workable sense. There are four causes. One, the formal cause. Two would be the material cause. Three would be the efficient cause. And lastly, appropriately, the final cause. So we have these 
four causes that Aristotle delineates and describes in book two of his physics. Now, we've already said something, vaguely, in anticipation of this more detailed discussion, about formal and material cause. In fact, at the very outset, jumping ahead of ourselves to some extent, we spoke about the soul as form of the human person and the body as matter. Now, when Aristotle begins this discussion of the causes of nature, that is, when we ask the question why of any natural substance, why is it this sort of thing? Why is it the way it is? Why does it operate in this way? We can bring into the answer to the why, we can answer that in many different ways, and especially in these four ways. We can give an account of the formal cause to start with, and then give an account of the material cause. We can give an account of the efficient cause and of the final cause. When Aristotle starts out describing these things, he takes up, as he often does in his approach to these questions, he takes up the opinions of his predecessors. And most of his predecessors who had discussed natural things, that is a kind of incipient physics, certainly nothing of the rigor of what is, and systematization of what Aristotle offers us in his book called The Physics. But when philosophers prior to Aristotle talked about natural things, they did want to answer the question, what is the fundamental stuff out of which things come? These philosophers are called pre-Socratic philosophers simply because they preceded Socrates. But you find some of them saying everything is air, or everything is water, or everything comes from fire. And if we add earth or matter, we have all of the four elements, earth, water, air, and fire. So there was some attempt to say there must be some fundamental physical stuff one of the elements, a quintessence, the so-called fifth element, or some mixture of these elements that accounts for what things are, for how they come to be, and how they come to live in the way that they do, or operate in the way that they do, and how they perish in the way that they do. And so there were these appeals to these fundamental elements as being the basic stuff out of which all things come to be. Notice that all of these are versions of the material so Aristotle takes up, first of all, the possibility that what nature is, what is nature? Why do natures become in the way that they do, live for those that do live, and perish in the way that they do, or decompose in the way that they do, if we're talking about non-living natural things? So the first one that Aristotle takes up is the material cause. Now he takes it up in part because this was the dominant view amongst his predecessors. But Aristotle's going to end up disagreeing with this view rather sharply. Nonetheless, he is interested in, committed to crediting what it is that was right about this view. Indeed, this is the initial, I don't want to say unreflective, but it is the natural first stab at saying what is nature. Indeed, when you think of the material cause, and I've used the language a number of times of the that out of which something comes to be, Aristotle's going to agree with that. That's right, that things come to be out of matter. And that without some material substratum, some basic physical stuff, we don't have natural things. So Aristotle's certainly willing to credit them as having gained a large part of the truth about natural things, and indeed a part that is not going to be rejected in any way by Aristotle. This is indeed out of which things come to be. But Aristotle's going to propose rather quickly that we need some other principle 
and this is going to be the formal cause. Now, why is it? I mean, this is important, not just for the relationship between the pre-Socratics and Aristotle, but as we'll see momentarily when we take up some objections to Aristotle's view of nature from modern science, this is important for Aristotle's debates with modern science, right? Because on this issue, modern scientists are closer to the pre-Socratics in some ways. They want to say there are no formal causes. So we saw Descartes and Hobbes both committed to modern science in different ways, one a dualist, one a materialist. Both of them deny that there are formal causes. They want to admit there are material causes, and we'll see momentarily, they want to admit something like efficient causes. That is, that there are particles, or we want to say basic stuff, material stuff out there, and these things interact. That is, they affect one another in certain ways, and reactions come out of this, and we can, if we have all the antecedent information, direction, velocity, mass, etc., we can predict what's going to happen in the natural world, right? This is the kind of mechanical, law-like sort of generalization that Newton elevated to a science of the entire cosmos in his Principia. So this issue is not important just for Aristotle and the pre-Socratics, but also for Aristotle and modern science. So what argument does Aristotle give? Of course, he's not addressing Newton and others at this point, but what argument against the pre-Socratic view that nature is simply the material substratum, the basic stuff out of which things come to be. What's his argument that we need something more and that we ought to call that a form? Well, there are a number of arguments that he gives. I'm going to list some of these arguments. These are arguments that we need form. Form makes substances to be in act. A little bit technical, a little bit cramped in ordinary English. The second thing that we can say about form is that the form is that from which we identify and name substances. And finally, we can say on this issue that matter is for the sake of form. So briefly, go through these arguments, but sufficiently, I hope, to make clear what they are. First of all, we're familiar a little bit with this language of potency and act, and that according to Aristotle, form is act and matter is potency. The form actualizes the substance, the material thing, makes it be a certain kind of material thing. And the view here is, go back to that language that I was using earlier and that Aristotle uses and that the pre-Socratics use, that matter is the stuff out of which things come to be. Aristotle wants to say that's right. Matter is the stuff out of which, Aristotle might want to add to that, matter is the stuff in which things come to be in a certain way. But being out of which or in which something comes to be indicates the sort of receptive or passive or potential character of matter vis-a-vis -vis form. That matter is taken to be receptive, potential, able to be put together in different combinations. Well, if you have any particular thing, be it an artifact like this desk or be it a natural substance like flowers. The reason that it has become a determinate sort of thing, that it is a being of this sort in act rather than merely in potentiality, that is it might come to be at some time, is because the matter has been formed. In the case of the desk, that's primarily that a certain kind of wood has been put together into a certain kind of shape so that it performs the function of a desk. And so the form the shape in this case, and with flowers and other natural things, the particular way in which the matter comes together makes the substance to be in act and not merely potentially. So that the form is the principle of the actuality of the thing. The matter 
is the receptive or the potential part. Now, we've already anticipated our second reason here for saying that form is as important, finally Aristotle's going to say more important than matter. The two are correlative, inseparable, but notions that we must understand in terms of one another, that is. But yet form has a kind of preeminence or primacy here. The second reason for that is that we name this material thing that's made up of a certain kind of matter. There are other things made up of the same kind of matter that are not desks. There's a certain shape or form that's given to it. And the form is what enables us to identify this thing as this sort of thing versus something else that might be made out of the same basic material constituents, but put together in a different way, informed, organized, configured in a different way. Similarly with non-artificial, with natural things, there are material bases there that are formed, organized in certain ways. It's the form that tells us why this particular material thing is the kind of thing it is, that helps us to identify it and name it as the sort of thing it is, distinct from other material things that might be at some level quite similar to it in terms of the material constituent parts. Finally, what Aristotle draws in a way from these first two claims, which shows the preeminence of form, is that matter is for the sake of form. That is, certain material conditions are there in advance and develop in the way that they do, and finally mature in the way that they do, or are completed with an artifact in the way that they are, so that we can have the sort of thing that the form tells us we have here. So that with a desk, you gather the materials, or with a building, a house, etc., you gather the physical materials that you need in order to build the kind of thing you want to build, so that the form, the shape, the configuration of the matter determines what kind of matter we need in advance, and not the reverse. It's not simply for Aristotle that we have material things, material stuff there in advance. These material things interact over time and produce, as it were by accident, the kind of thing that comes out of them. Some versions of evolution, although these are hotly disputed today, even among the partisans of evolution, some versions of evolution treat all of the development of species in this way, right? You have antecedent material causes there, they interact in some way, there's scarcity, etc. And something by chance comes to be out of that. There's a so-called development, although it's hard to use that language of development if what is resulting is merely happening by chance. For Aristotle, we need to talk about matter in light of the form rather than the reverse. So the kind of thing that's there explains why the matter is there, why we need the matter to start with, why the matter is organized in the way it is, why it develops in the way it does. So that for Aristotle, form is preeminent with respect to nature. We can say a little more about this. I've already used that language of development, which shows up even in Darwin. Darwin sort of wants to assert that there are developments and then take it back at the same time, because the very term development seems to indicate that we have something higher emerging from this process. And yet, his own view that we have these material causes which interact and something by chance survives, other things die off, really doesn't give us an idea of development. It gives us an idea that with respect to this particular set of circumstances, this species or this part of the species was more fit to survive, where others were not as suited to survive. We can give that kind of view of development or say that this was better, but we can't really say that there's anything higher overall. I mean, this is a sort of strict view, reducing everything to antecedent material causes, would say, well, the term higher really doesn't make any sense. It's simply that there were these material causes. They interacted in this way, given the environment, and out of that we got this. So you simply have to say that this came later than this, or it came after it because of these other things. 
but you really are pushing it to say that there is a development into something higher and better here. Well, of course, scientists who are at work studying chimpanzees or dolphins or various kinds of trees and plants do say all the time, both in their ordinary speech and in their specific scientific investigations, that here we have a mature instance of this species. Here we have a deficient instance. Here we have a kind of developed version or a mature version versus an immature version. So that this language that modern science and the rejection of formal cause seems to require is in fact there in our ordinary description of the world and often in science's own wrestling with natural things. Now one way to see this for Aristotle is not just to talk about the development of things in accord with their form, but to talk about the way in which things, natural, especially living substances, present themselves to us. And one of the things we can say about this is that natural substances are organic wholes. They don't present themselves to us as heaps, just piles of things, parts that are arbitrarily related to one another. Rather, there's a kind of unity to the parts, right? And that's the second point, is that the parts, the organs, the parts of organic things, of substances, the parts serve specific functions that are good not only for the particular part, but for the whole. Another thing that we can say about mature instances of species and the way they present themselves to us, both in ordinary experience and one could argue in science as well, is that there is a kind of directedness to their activities. That once we have detailed knowledges of plants and how they survive in certain climates and so forth, how they flourish and not just survive in certain climates, we can say that the parts are serving the end of the survival and the health, maintenance of the health, and indeed flourishing as we get higher up the chain of being. Right? We can speak of situations, I mean, detailed studies that have been done on dolphins and chimpanzees and so forth. That's why we're so concerned about their losing their natural habitat, be that the ocean or the jungle, right? That we know that there are certain contexts in which chimpanzees, for example, or dolphins do better and other contexts in which they do worse. So that there is here a notion of the proper activities, the informed bodily activities of these things, that there's a kind of directedness to them, and that these can be frustrated or realized, for better or for worse. They can be frustrated in certain circumstances to the extent that the entire species can disappear. They can survive in other circumstances, and then there are environments where they actually flourish where the context and the environment is conducive to the particular directed activities in which they engage in being successful. So then we can say about them, they are organic wholes, parts serve specific functions that are good for those parts and good for the whole, that there is in their activities a certain kind of directedness. We can also, on this view, say something about higher and lower. Modern science, as I've mentioned, is deeply ambivalent about whether we ought to talk about higher and lower. Of all the isms, perhaps one of the most recent ones that's been bandied about in certain contexts is the so-called speciesism, right? which is the idea that I'm somehow unwarranted in saying that my species is better or higher than other species, ant colonies, slugs, whatever, that all these things are somehow supposed to be treated equally as having the same sort of purchase on the natural environment in which they live. That is a kind of absurd conclusion to which the denial that there is anything higher than anything else and anything lower than anything else can be taken. On this view, we can say, on Aristotle's view, that there are 
higher and lower. Higher and lower in terms of what? In terms of soul. In terms of the capacities that are appropriate to this sort of soul in relation to this sort of body. Right, so we can talk about higher and lower in terms of soul and it's usually on this an increase of interaction with the external world and a gradual increase of interaction within the particular organism. That is, as we move up higher, we find not only a kind of greater openness to the external world, but also a greater capacity of inwardness. So that we can talk about plants, right, which have some sort of interaction with the world, and you can talk about leaves of plants protecting. And I suppose you could talk there about a kind of inwardness, but it's merely a sort of physical inwardness, right, where the bud or the flower is protected until it fully blooms, and then it opens up onto the world. So there is a kind of openness onto the world, but we don't talk about plants in other than a kind of vegetative way as taking in water and nutriment from the soil. We don't talk about them as having a kind of inwardness unless we're pretty far gone and need to be locked up because we're talking to our plants in a way that we hope they will respond to us from their inwardness. But with animals, it's not quite as bizarre to talk about certainly as having a greater openness to the external world as affecting things in the external world and interacting with it more. I mean, just take a regular house pet like a dog. It certainly interacts with the external world in many more complicated ways than a plant ever could. People take this too far too, leaving their legacies and their money to pets and so forth. But we talk about dogs as friends. There is something not just of an openness to the world, but perhaps something of a kind of inwardness. We may associate this simply with the fact that we know that many animals, all animals it seems, can experience pleasure and pain. And so there seems to be some locus there where there is something that can be taken in and experienced by the animal whereas in plants we can talk about damage being done to them but it is a stretch of the metaphor to say that they actually feel pleasure and pain although there are tests done as well to say that certain environments seem conducive to plants developing more fully than others. So as we move up the chain from plants to animals we see both a greater openness to an interaction with the external world and a greater kind of inwardness. Of course this is even more accentuated with human beings who not only interact with, but largely construct a good part of the world in which they live. And beyond that construction of the houses and cars and buildings, etc., that we live in from day to day, there's also our ability to sort of wonder about how little we may all know about the world that we could be confident of in any detail doesn't detract from the fact that we can and often do, either in times of great joy or times of great sorrow, we do have a kind of wonder about what's it all about and what is pondering the stars at night. What are these things? What is the universe? So we can ask those sorts of questions. The mind is in a way open to the whole of reality in a way that an animal, for whatever experience an animal might be capable of, like a dog, is certainly not open. And we certainly have a greater degree of inwardness as well as this kind of openness that I'm talking about. The very fact that we can carry on conversations with ourselves, hopefully not while we're wandering around speaking loudly in public, but we do carry on conversations with ourselves. And this is a kind of inwardness that we can not only talk to others, but talk to and with ourselves. So that for Aristotle we can reasonably, in some general ways, talk about the difference between higher and lower in natural things. And this is, I think, an advantage. Now, before we leave this discussion of nature as a kind of context, I want to go back briefly to those four causes because really, if you've been attentive, you will notice that we've only really talked about two. That is the material and the formal cause. And I've given a few arguments that Aristotle gives in the physics for why we need to add the formal cause 
to the material cause to get an adequate account of natural things and indeed why we need to treat the form as preeminently that which we are studying. Of course, since the form is united to the matter, we can't study either of these separately from one another. But we should say something briefly just about the efficient and the final cause, and then I want to take up a few objections that have been raised to this view of nature. The efficient cause is the cause that gets something started. You could talk about an efficient cause of the writing that is here on the board, and the instrumental cause of that would be my hand, but it would go back to me. I mean, I'm the efficient cause of the writing that's up here. I'm what made that come to be. So you can talk about a specific event in terms of an efficient cause. You can talk about it in terms of natural things as that which is the source of some substance, not just coming to be affected in this way, so that I've made this board, at least part of it, turn from white to black by writing on it with a black marker. But you could talk about what's the efficient cause of a certain tree coming to be? What made that thing come to be? What's the cause? And then it would be the seeds that fell from a fully formed mature tree nearby, or if the seeds have been transported and planted somewhere far off. But there is an efficient cause, not just for events, as we might call them, but also for natural substances themselves, for them coming into being. And so Aristotle will talk about the efficient cause in natural things as being a mature instance of the species that brings about, in an appropriate way, a way specific to the species, that is, offspring. The final cause is that for the sake of which a particular activity occurs or the whole development of a certain instance of a species. Right? So we can talk about events again, and then we can move over to natural substances. So you could say, well, why did I pick up this marker and go to the board and write this word? You could say, I picked up the marker. Proximate reason was because I wanted to write on the board. Why did I want to write on the board? Because I wanted to help clarify a particularly salient point in this lecture about nature. Right? So that's to give an account of the final cause. Right? Why did I pick up the marker? Well, you could say, because I wanted to write on the board. You give an even fuller account of that by asking, why did you want to write on the board? So you can ask about the final cause there. And my intention in this case would be the final cause of that series of specific actions that I undertook. Now, you can also ask about a sapling, a small tree that has grown from a seed. And you can ask, well, why is it developing in this way? And it sounds very simplistic and vague, but sometimes simplistic and vague is the most important thing to begin with and not to forget. It might sound simplistic and vague, but nonetheless true and important to say, well, it's on its way to becoming a mature oak or whatever particular instance of species of tree it is. So the final cause would be the end of an event that's occurring or a set of actions that's occurring. The final cause would also be the goal toward which the development of this instance of the species is headed. Why is it developing in this way? This is where, what I said earlier, that this view could handle the language of immaturity and maturity, of perfect instance versus defective instance. These are very important language that we use all the time and that scientists use all the time. Well, it's in terms of the final cause, that for the sake of which this thing is developing. It's developing to be a mature, flourishing instance of whatever it is, and that is to perform whatever functions are appropriate to it. So if it doesn't make it there, if that development is thwarted in some way, we say it was frustrated, it's undeveloped, it's deficient in some way. Certainly with natural things, it's somewhat more complicated with humans, but we don't mean here to impugn morally the tree that grew part of the way and didn't quite make it, right? We don't mean to say it's a bad tree in any moral sense, but it is a bad tree if it didn't fully come to be what the seed, as it were, contained potentially for it to become.
And so we can retain with final causality this language of immaturity, maturity, defective, mature, or perfect. So those are the four causes, the efficient, the formal, the material, and the final. Now, one last word on this before we take up our objections to this, which is that these four causes are operative, according to Aristotle, in both artificial things and in natural things. And indeed, when Aristotle gives examples of the four causes in Book Two of the Physics, he will give examples, first of all, from art. So that, take the bronze statue, which I mentioned earlier. We can talk about the bronze as being the material, the particular shape as being the formal cause, right? the efficient cause, the sculptor. The final cause here can be described variously. right? To make enough money to pay one's debts as a sculptor, simply for the pleasure of beholding the artifact when completed, right? to perform a job that one had simply been paid for, whatever the final cause is. right? The final cause there can be described variously depending upon the intention that went into making it. Obviously, the most immediate final cause would simply be for there to be this sort of statue in the way that the sculptor wanted it to be. So we can talk about in art and then in nature, right? There's a certain seed that's starting to sprout, that's starting to grow and then sprout from that. And we can say that there is a material cause, the particular material that the thing is made out of. Formal causes, the particular capacities, the kind of, that would go into explaining why it is that this tree ultimately has apples on it rather than oranges, et cetera. Right? That would be a kind of formal explanation of why the matter is configured in the way it does. The final cause, it's developing in this way so as to be a mature instance of the species. Efficient cause is simply another instance of the same sort of thing. Right? A mature instance from which the seeds drop to the ground and begin to produce another tree of the same kind. Aristotle notices something interesting in the comparison between art and nature. Obviously, as I've just indicated, the four causes show up equally in a way in both. But Aristotle notices that in nature, as contrasted with art, these three are identical. That is, the kind of account we give is very closely related. Material cause is somehow slightly different. But when I said that there's a certain tree right, that's developing in a certain way, its goal is to be a mature instance of this kind of tree which is the same as the efficient cause. It's not the same tree that gives birth to itself, right? But the answer to the question, what's the efficient cause? A mature instance of the species. What's the final cause? A mature instance of the species. And the formal cause, in a way, is the pattern that leads to the development of the mature instance of the species. So that Aristotle notices at one point later in Book Two of the Physics that these three in natural things are basically the same. We can give the same sort of account of these three. Whereas in natural things, they're quite different. The formal cause of the statue is the shape that it has. The efficient cause is the artist. And the final can be variously described, as we noticed, with artificial things, to perform a certain function, to please people, to get money, whatever. So that there's something about these causes being more intimately intrinsic to the thing that distinguishes these causes as operative and natural things versus artificial things. OK, now briefly on to three objections to the account of nature. The first objection is that in talking about formal and final causes with respect to natural things that are subhuman, what we're doing is illicitly personifying nature. We're, in other words, saying that nature, that plants have some sort of consciousness that they're intending to operate for a certain end. The second objection is that, I'm going to put it fairly technically and then explain this briefly, that what we're appealing to in talking about formal cause is what's called occult qualities. 
Now this is not devil worship or something, when we use the word occult here. Simply the technical term of occult, the etymology of it, which just means hidden. We're appealing when we talk about formal causes. The claim was advanced by early modern scientists like Bacon and Descartes and others, that what we're appealing to are things, causes, that don't really show up in any determinate way. So these hidden causes that we can't really point to and say, well, where is this? I can point to the matter, right? I can touch it. I can do experiments on it. But what am I doing with the form? Right? It seems to be some kind of hidden cause, some mysterious spiritual thing that stands behind the matter somehow. And I'm supposed to jump over the matter to get some sort of insight into this formal cause. And if that were the right view, that would certainly be problematic, right? That doesn't seem like a scientific inquiry that one would engage in to start positing all these hidden causes when simply explaining things in terms of their matter would be enough. And that leads to our third objection, that this account of nature, especially in terms of formal and final causes, is naive and superfluous, right? It's naive because it's the stuff that was around before the mathematical sciences really got developed, right? Before we could really say anything about the chemical basis of the operation of the brain. So it might have made a kind of sense in a naive pre-scientific world, right? Where one had not become critical and scientific and mathematical, where one really wasn't doing detailed experiments on things. So it's naive, it's superfluous. Right? Once, this is a kind of summary of a couple of these objections. Superfluous because why? Well because once we've explained the material components of the thing and traced how those components interact, we have explained all there is to explain. So positing a formal and a final cause is redundant, superfluous. And in fact, focusing on it detracts us from the serious work of science. It's not scientific. Well, what are we to say about these objections? Well, the first thing I want to say, and I want to say this about each of them, is that there is a kernel of truth in the objection. And it's important to see this with objections. There's often a kernel of truth, otherwise the objection wouldn't be persuasive to anyone. And I want to talk about what the kernel of truth is in each of these objections, and then nonetheless say that they don't finally merit our allegiance. The first one about personifying nature. Well, recall that when I just rehearsed moments ago the four causes in nature and art, I said that when Aristotle first introduces the four causes, he gives us examples from art. Well. Those are examples where you have human intelligence at work shaping matter in a certain way so as to introduce form, right? And with an end in mind, that is a human end, right? When I make the statue, I'm the one who introduces a form or a shape. And I'm the one who decides what the end to which this is to be put or for the sake of which these activities are undertaken. So there is some truth to this. And the truth is that it's certainly easier to see the notion of formal and especially final causality, that is, something acting for the sake of an end. Right? It's easier to see how that happens, where it happens, in examples that are taken from human life. When I talked about why I picked up the pen and began to write, well, ultimately that was reduced to my intention. Right? I wanted to communicate something and thought this would be a reasonable way to do it. So the kernel of truth here is that it's easier to see final causality in human life than it is to see it in the natural world. But nothing in this account that I've given of Aristotle, or can I see in Aristotle or Aquinas anywhere, indicates that they actually thought of attributing consciousness to plants, to say that the plant develops in the way it does because it has a kind of incipient intention in childhood to develop this way. Right? Indeed, this isn't even true of human beings. 
that our development happens because we consciously intend it. I mean, we can probably thwart our development. We could kill ourselves, and that would end the development rather quickly. And we can thwart our development. I was warned when I was young many times not to smoke cigarettes because it would harm my growth. Right? Well, I didn't grow all that tall after all, even though I never smoked. But there are ways in which we're told that we can sort of impede or harm our growth. But the way, generally speaking, human beings develop, physically, socially, etc., is kind of there. Right? It can take many different forms, especially when we get into the particular life plans or ways of life that any of us embraces. But the development of a human being happens whether we assent to it or not. Right? I mean, provided we don't do something serious to impede it, it's going to happen. So this view, it's not even at the level of a human final causality or formal causality, not even at that level are we talking about, in every case, a kind of intention. Of course, we are with certain activities. And for me to achieve an end that is appropriate to my nature, I somehow have to consciously cooperate with that and choose it and understand what I'm doing. But my development, right, from a child to a young adult to a man, that's not a matter of my conscious cooperation, right? That can happen better or worse according to how I cooperate with it. But the development itself is in a way fixed by nature. So this notion that we're personifying nature, giving consciousness to things that aren't conscious, that's simply not the case. Although it is easier to see, as I said at the outset, that we have a final cause in things where there is human intelligence and intention. The second one, occult qualities, is that we're appealing to something that's hidden. Again, there's a kernel of truth in this. The kernel of truth is the following, that Aquinas and Aristotle both say that the ultimate natures of things are hidden from us. Right? That what we know are the accidents, the things that appear on the outside. Now, this means that there's a kind of limit to our knowledge of the formal cause of the nature of the thing and how it's related to the matter. But it doesn't mean that when we're studying the form, we're setting aside the matter and looking for some hidden spiritual essence of the thing. Right? I mean, after all, the way I've been describing form over and over again is as the configuration of the matter. Right? The way the parts are related to one another and function to serve the well-being and flourishing of the whole. Now that's not something that's hidden. In fact, if we didn't see that immediately, some of it, in encountering physical things, we wouldn't know what they were or whether they were acting appropriately or bizarrely. So we're not, when we're talking about form, indeed, finding the ultimate principles of the form, as we'll see a little bit later, that's difficult. And that is, in a way, hidden. But seeing the way the form is manifest in the matter, the way it organizes it, that's, in a way, initially right on the surface. And then we get deeper and deeper with the more knowledge that we have of the thing. But we're not jumping from the matter over to some hidden spiritual essence there. We're simply looking more carefully at the way the thing is configured and the way it operates. All right, the last one, that this is naive and superfluous. Well, naive to some extent it may be, but I have argued all along in this that the very world that modern natural science wants to try to explain is a world we encounter initially naively. That is, modern science wants to try and explain the things around us. And we encounter those things basically in the way Aristotle describes them. Indeed, the language that we use to describe those things enters into natural science to a great extent. So it might be true. In fact, the contemporary 20th century phenomenology has often argued for placing modern science in a larger context. And Edmund Husserl, one of the most famous of the phenomenologists, a teacher of Edith Stein, who later went on to become a student of St. Thomas herself and tried to put together phenomenology and Thomism, Husserl talks about the need to return to the naivete of ordinary life as a corrective to the naivete of science. 
Because science's view that we could explain everything that is to be explained simply by talking about the chemical, mathematical properties of things leaves an awful lot of what we experience every day completely out of bounds for scientific inquiry. And so the question, especially when it comes to living things, is whether simply in terms of material and efficient causalities we can get an adequate explanation. And one a caveat here, in my emphasis on the notion of form and its importance and then of final causality and its importance, I might seem to have been detracting from or neglecting the material cause. I want to correct any sort of impression on this score, right? Because if we go back, we see that the formal cause is always the form of some matter. And so, as we'll see shortly, when Aristotle defines soul, he defines it in terms of the material subject, which it informs and actualizes. So whenever we're talking about the formal cause, we also have to be talking about the material cause. And indeed, for Aristotle, there are necessary material conditions that are operative whenever a form is operating appropriately. The powers of the form, indeed there is an exception to this, which when we turn to the human intellect. But that has to be defended as an exception. The general principle that Aristotle and Aquinas use is that the form is always the form of some matter. So when we are talking about the form, we also have to be talking about the matter and the activities appropriate to the powers of this form. Right? Those are going to have necessary material conditions. So there is the possibility here, an awful lot of work needs to be done. Some have tried, no one has fully convinced modern scientists of this. So there is the possibility here of a reconciliation between Aristotle's approach and modern science which is more physically based and chemically based and more exclusively materialistic. If modern science were to give up its reductionism, that is saying that everything must be reduced to a chemical, physical, material cause, if modern science were to give that up, then what we could have is the possibility of bringing in formal cause along with material cause and resurrecting some of Aristotle's conception of nature. So that then is something of the background that we need to keep in mind when we are talking about Aristotle's conception of nature. And I want just very briefly now to introduce the next topic and then we'll take a break and come back and get into this more fully. In the next topic what I want to do is having talked now for most of this second lecture about nature as the sort of proximate ground out of which Aquinas and Aristotle's account of human nature arises. I want to make a transition to talking more specifically about the soul and about human nature. Right, because we've seen that this is the ultimate aim of the study of nature is to study human nature and then the principles of all of nature, finally God, which is studied as a cause in metaphysics. And this account, in, which we find primarily in Aristotle's De Anima, what I want to do, and I'll just introduce this and then we'll stop here, but what I want to do is to hit the high points of Aristotle's De Anima as the culmination of this study of nature and to show how this background that we've sketched sort of fleshes itself out once we move over to the topic of soul and then over to the topic of human nature. And we will be taking up issues that have to do with Aristotle's definition of soul, his method in the investigation of soul which is very important and diametrically opposed to that of Descartes, his view of the peculiar capacities of human beings especially when it comes to understanding and reasoning and we will offer some brief comparison of the similarities between and the differences between sensation and understanding. And finally we will end that section with a consideration of the human intellect and that will be our prelude to a lengthier discussion of human knowledge and then human freedom.
We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.